So let's go on to your next patient. So this actually speaks to that point about lapatinib and toxicity. This is a 65-year-old white female who, in 1994, was diagnosed with infiltrating ductal carcinoma of the right breast. She was premenopausal at the time. She had a T1 tumor, but she had 13 positive lymph nodes. She was ER positive, PR negative, and she was managed with a mastectomy, and she was actually put on the 2190 trial, which randomized patients between CAF for six cycles versus that treatment followed by transplant. And it just seems so long ago because, you know, it's off the radar screen at this point. Well, she was randomized to the chemo-only arm. She did not get transplant. Hold on. I got to stop you there on that one. So now let's see. This is 1994, 17 years ago. (laughs) So she was 48, right? Right. And I just got to ask you for historic. I'm always curious, you know, it was interesting what you were saying about the Taylor X study. And I know you're so pro-research. What was it like getting consent for transplant versus not in general? And what was it like in her? Were you involved with that or that was before you? She actually went to our local university center for the enrollment in the study. But the situation was with 13 positive lymph nodes, the concern was that she was at extraordinarily high risk And at that time, we were not sure of the data. We thought the trial was very important because there were many patients who were getting transplanted off study, and it was extraordinarily toxic and expensive. We needed this information. And fortunately, eventually we got it, and transplant is no longer on the table. I guess you could say she got randomized to the right arm, huh? She absolutely did. Amazing. When you think about it, if she'd had a transplant, we'd be sitting here saying, wow, she really went a long time with 13 positive nodes. Anyhow, that calf is good stuff. So what happened next? So she had tamoxifen and radiotherapy. And then in 2007, so a good 13 years later, she had chest symptoms and was found to have obstructive pneumonia of the left upper lobe and underwent bronchoscopy, which showed an obstructing, friable endobronchial mass, which on biopsy was adenocarcinoma. And she had a workup by the chest surgeon who was able to demonstrate lytic disease in her spine, and she had hyalur and mediastinal nodes, liver metastases, other bone metastases. And she was sent to me, very symptomatic, with a diagnosis of stage four lung cancer. And because she was so symptomatic, I immediately started her on paclitaxel, carboplatin, and bevacizumab, but I asked our pathologist to run hormone receptors and her too on the endobronchial lesion. Well, she came back to see me and she was immediately better. She was able to breathe, she stopped coughing, And it was a dramatic response, and the pathologist came back and said that this was ER positive, PR positive, HER2 positive. So with the second cycle of treatment, I switched her. I took off the bevacizumab, and I put in trastuzumab. So I just have to interrupt and ask before you go any farther. So hi, you know, we were talking, I mean, certainly you can't argue with switching to trastuzumab, but... Alan was mentioning earlier the Beth trial, looking at adding on bevacizumab in HER2-positive patients. And I guess the thinking there is that 
maybe HER2 positive breast cancer is going to be actually maybe more responsive to anti-angiogenics or BEV? It's possible. I mean, there's a strong VEGF signal in a lot of those HER2 positive tumors in microarray and other assays, and it might turn out to be beneficial. You know, I think the politics of bevacizumab have soured a lot of people on the drug, but we still have several large trials that we're waiting for in the adjuvant setting, the ECOG 5103 trial with thousands of patients randomized to chemotherapy and then bevacizumab or not in different schedules. We have the BETH trial, and I think these trials are all worthy of completion. And there's some signal that maybe bevacizumab is helpful in triple negative breast cancer, which also has a strong VEGF signal. And at least in some of the trials, if you dissect the ribbon trials and things, the small numbers of patients, there's some hint it's helpful. So I think that going ahead with the BETH trial, we certainly should not stop our adjuvant studies of bevacizumab and breast cancer that are going on now. I think we might be surprised and there is some preclinical data suggesting benefit. And certainly the chemo could have been, you know, what caused this rapid response. But, sure. you know, we were talking about bevacizumab. Whenever we talk about it, I always think to myself, you know, is there a marker out there? Is there a HER2? Is there something that'll pick out a small percent as it does in HER2 of patients who respond to the novel agents? And I guess, hi, so far, I haven't seen anything. Have you seen anything that looks hopeful? No, I mean, there's some suggestion that the people who get the hypertension and other problems may do a little bit better, but I'm not sure that's true and related. I have not. So I guess it was pretty good news, Alan, when you found out you had two markers to work with there, the HER2 positivity and the ER positivity. So you switched HER2 to trastuzumab. What did you do about the chemo? Well, since she had such a dramatic response, I kept the chemo the same. I wasn't going to throw away a winning hand. So she stayed on paclitaxel and carboplatin with the addition of trastuzumab, and she had a complete remission on PET scan and even recalcified her lytic spinal disease. I stopped the chemo after six cycles, and I maintained her on trastuzumab and added letrozole and zoledronic acid. I'm just kind of curious how, looking back, now was this lady sick when you first treated her from the tumor? Yes, yeah, she was very symptomatic. She could barely breathe, she was coughing incessantly, and she needed immediate treatment. So, hi, if you had known right from the beginning that it was ER-positive, HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, I'm assuming because she was symptomatic, you probably would have given her everything up front. But how do you generally approach these sort of triple-positive metastatic situations do you always use HER2 therapy? Do you ever go with endocrine therapy alone? Well, that's a great question. I think this patient was really very symptomatic, and the odds of getting a good response would be to certainly go with HER2-directed therapy, and I would lean to chemotherapy, even though I'm not totally convinced that chemotherapy always works more quickly than endocrine therapy in breast cancer. So I would have done what Alan did. In fairness, he was treating her for lung cancer at that time, and she had other extensive METs. So perhaps if it was an isolated lesion, we might have considered radiation therapy or getting a pulmonologist to see her for a stent. But considering all her other METs and the rapidity of the process, it was a great call and it seemed to work. I think if you saw this patient in the context that 
she was found incidentally to have three bone mats because she had a CT after she was in an auto accident. And it was biopsied and it was HER2 positive, hormone receptor positive, that I in patients who might have this long free interval, a minimal volume of tumor, would still treat some of these patients with endocrine therapy alone without anti-HER2 therapy. I mean, we have data from lapatinib with AIs. We have data with trastuzumab and tamoxifen in AIs. And certainly the anti-HER2 therapy adds a little bit. And it's fair to say that these HER2 positive patients are going to be less responsive to endocrine therapy alone. But I think it's not unreasonable to treat them with single agent if they're in pretty good shape, low volume disease, you're following them and hold the anti-HER2 therapy until they progress or get to chemotherapy. I think this patient, though, is much different. Okay, maybe you can kind of bring us up to date on what happened since then, Alan. Okay, so she stayed on this therapy for about three years and did just great. And then last spring, so this would have been actually April 2010, she had a seizure and was found to have multiple brain metastases. And she got radiotherapy to the brain, and I decided at that point, because we still had no evidence of extracranial disease, that perhaps she should be switched to lapatinib, hoping that perhaps she would have better CNS penetration. But she could not tolerate the drug, just very similar to what we were discussing earlier. She had terrible diarrhea, even down to 750 milligrams a day. She was just incapacitated by the diarrhea, the asthenia, the nausea. And finally, we decided that we had to abandon that approach. So she went back on trastuzumab, and eventually the letrozole was stopped because of progressive bone metastases, and currently she's getting fulvestrant and trastuzumab, and actually is doing somewhat better. I would say that over the last six months, she and her husband and I have all been able to appreciate a functional improvement. I'm curious, Hi, you know, this sounds like a pretty difficult story. What was it like meeting her today? Well, you know, when I heard Alan talk about her, I expected to actually see a much sicker patient. But when I saw her, she was very comfortable. She asked Alan some perceptive questions, you know, that were kind of hinting on, could this be cured? And he answered them very eloquently, but she was not symptomatic. Alan had told me that after her radiation, she had had cognitive function loss and developed it. It almost looked to me like a Parkinson-like tremor today. In fact, we looked for cogwheeling there, and I don't know if I could talk myself into it, but actually from Alan's report, the husband's report, and the patient's report over the last few months, at least the cognitive function has improved substantially. And I noticed when we left, she was able to get up by herself and leave with her husband. So my view was she was really doing very, very well in her current therapy. And Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, did an MRI to follow up after the radiation. And it looked like there was excellent tumor response, a lot of cortical gray matter loss, perhaps from the radiation as a toxicity. But the tumor looked very, very well controlled. So I was actually surprised. I thought her cognitive function was very good. She smiled, kind of laughed at some jokes and looked like she was doing extremely well at this time. Her questions suggested that she had a lot of 
concerns about the future, but at least at this time she was doing well and her husband was an extremely supportive and attentive guy, which I think was very helpful. You said she asked questions related to her future. What specifically did she ask today? Well, she wants to know about her prognosis. She wants to know how long we can go with this and what is the nature of her outcome. She understands that brain metastases is a dire complication and the survival is short. And here she is 17 months after the identification of brain metastasis and getting better. So she's wondering, you know, is everything that I told her about the situation really true? Because why would she be getting better? Well, also, actually, she's had metastatic disease now for four years. Yeah, that's and correct. And telling me that, you know, she looks pretty good. She looks, you know, she's probably had metastatic disease for 17 years. Right. So she does. I mean, for a woman who's been through so much, I thought she was very functional. And I expected to see someone with much more cognitive loss, you know, who wouldn't respond to your questions or kept looking at their husband or daughter in the room or whoever's there, you know, to help them out. And she was actually pretty good. And in fact, disagreed on a few things that had gone on in the past. So I thought she was pretty with it. What kind of work did she do, Alan, in the past? Okay, she has actually been a housewife. And actually, I've known this lady many years. And her husband, who seems so supportive now, was actually not part of the picture until she developed brain metastases. Now he comes in every visit, he speaks for her. But in times before that, she had confided to me that she was not happy in the marriage and she now feels very dependent upon her husband and feels like you know she has no choice but to accept his input. So, hi, if I were this lady or if she were in my family, one of the things I'd be thinking about is, you know, I imagine it's very possible you could squeeze more out of trastuzumab and hormone therapy, etc. But there may come a time, you know, when that's going to be a problem. And there are agents out there that currently might be kind of hard to access that I'd be wanting right. to access. And one of them is TDM1. And the other we were talking about the new adjuvant right. study was pertuzumab. Where are things heading? And do you see those kinds of agents theoretically maybe being in her future? Well, to my knowledge, we've seen a lot of impressive data on TDM1, which is a trastuzumab chemotherapy conjugate, very exciting. And to my knowledge, those data are mature enough and are going to be presented or perhaps have already been presented to the FDA for approval. I'm not directly involved with that, so I don't know if that's true, but I've talked with some of my friends more knowledgeable, such as Hal Burstein and others who've been more involved. So I think TDM1 could be very exciting. Pertuzumab is another exciting drug. I know that some very large adjuvant and metastatic trials are currently in progress with that agent, and I suspect they're likely to be positive, and that could be approved in the future. There's another anti-HER2 agent, Neratinib, which is a small molecule, which is in a very large adjuvant trial being used in patients who are HER2 positive who've actually had trastuzumab and then are randomized to the neratinib, which is an oral agent or not, which is ongoing worldwide and is another agent potentially there. So I suspect the TDM1 is most mature here. And at least in the phase two and the data I've seen is very, very impressive. 
and to my knowledge, may be approved shortly. You may know more from your travels with some of our other players about this. Yeah, I don't know about the FDA issues, but I know that, as you say, there have been encouraging responses with neratinib. Of course, there's been a lot of toxicity, yeah. which in this lady, she's already had toxicity with, with and diarrhea. So, yeah. so who knows? The pertuzumab, which of course blocks dimerization of HER2 and HER3, you know, repositive results in the adjuvant setting. And now I think there's a press release out there with the so-called Cleopatra trial in metastatic disease that'll be reported, I guess, pretty soon. It sounds positive. So I always ask with these things, I like to get feedback from the docs who participate in this in terms of what the experience was like. So I'll kind of start with you, Hi. I'm just kind of curious, what was today like for you? Well, I left to schmooze and I loved it. I loved the day. I've never done this, Neil. So this is a very unique thing you've thought of, but it was an easy day for me. Alan is a terrific doc. His patients are really very, very close to him. He's a hugger. And he knew all these social histories without having to delve in and redo them today. So I've had a terrific day. And, you know, I've learned lots from Alan about how to think about patients and the way he managed some of these patients. Some of the things were things that I think I wouldn't have thought of. So I think it's been terrific. And we were a good symbiotic relationship today. It's also nice for me as someone who's been in academic centers that have a lot of resources that a practice might not have, to see a lot of the things that Alan does have, like control of his life and his clinic and other things. So I think as an academician, I learned a lot from the way Alan does things and his record keeping and other skills. I think it was a terrific experience. And he also selected, I think, a gamut of patients who were articulate about their disease, who had very, very interesting and complicated medical courses but also interesting social issues related to the disease. So I thought it was a terrific experience and really enjoyed it. And, you know, actually saw how patients were actually treated, what they got, not what we might do or should do, but what actually they got. And it was a very good experience. Alan? I thought this was a wonderful day. I've been doing general community hematology oncology for almost 30 years. And the biggest challenge for me is keeping up with the explosion of information in every tumor type. This is the most difficult thing. And many times we just make decisions based on our clinical judgment, but we don't really have any feedback. And having high in the office today was great because I was able to get some feedback and I got some great ideas about how to tweak the care of these patients. When I was in medical school at the University of Vermont, we had a visionary professor of medicine there named Dr. Larry Weed, and one of his expressions that he used to say was, any system without a feedback loop runs wild. And many times in community practice, we don't have a feedback loop. So this was really a good experience for me. I'm just kind of curious too, Hi, you know, we've talked over the years about I don't know how to describe this, maybe the existential position of being an oncologist and how unique it is. And I put myself outside that today because I don't see patients, but just to see, you know, people taking care of so many patients in difficult situations. I'm just kind of curious too, sort of looking over Alan's shoulder and not having to worry about, you know, getting stuff done today. 
whether it affected, you know, kind of the way you see yourself high as an oncologist. What I saw today was, you know, we kind of have, in academic centers, we're all specialists, and we know lots about little in a way. We know a lot about breast cancer, but we don't know about lung cancer, and we don't know about colorectal cancer. And what I learned today was maybe I couldn't do what Alan does. And I mean that because I looked at these eight breast patients, and they were all managed as well as they get in any academic center with all the expertise around. And yet, when Alan goes back today, his next call may be from that renal cell patient on the new TKI with a whole new spectrum of toxicity, God knows what, cost issues, reimbursement issues. And so I kind of said to myself a few times when I was looking at the pilot journals Alan is trying to master, which I don't think he will be able to do, but he's given it a good try, that, boy, I have it good in many ways that I can concentrate just on one disease and master most of the facts. We always learn about the issues of the social issues, and we're always learning from our patients. But at least I can master a lot of the facts. But I don't think I could go back now and open a general oncology practice and possibly keep up with the information. And it's important to keep up now because we have a lot of brand new drugs coming out, which are terrific. And we need to know about them. So I kind of was sitting back here today looking at the desk, looking at the pile, looking at the old DeVitas, looking at 20 years of proceedings of ASCO, saying, I don't think I could go out into a small community and run an oncology practice. I'm comfortable in the breast cancer, and I'm glad there are guys like Alan out there. Alan? I consider it a tremendous privilege to be able to take care of these patients. I learn a lot from my patients. It keeps me focused on priorities in my life. You know, at the end of a work day, I can go work out in the gym and I can go home and be with my family, but these patients go home with their cancer, they go home with their side effects, they go home with the existential crisis about what is my mortality. And I am very humbled that they place their trust in me to help guide them through such a difficult time. And I don't take that responsibility lightly. 